Amen. Trust me, God does answer prayers because I still like the look of John's face after 17 years. So I know you'll be fine this morning. Um, I'm really excited about um, John asking me to do James chapter 2 because I love simplistic stuff. I love something that I can take from God's word and I don't have to unpack it too much. I don't need to get out all the theology books that John has from his courses at uni. I don't need to get our door wedge of Strong's Concordance because James has written some stuff really simply that I can take and I can apply. So I hope you're as excited as me this morning that we've got some really simple stuff that should make a massive difference in our lives this morning. But before we do that, um, John's been sharing a bit about his Fitbit. He's very chuffed with his Fitbit. I think I'm more um, caught up with Fitbit stuff. I have not got one, but I'm so interested in his. I keep checking how many steps he's done. Has he beaten Joe Tilly? Because she's one of the challengers. And we've been thinking about eating healthy in our house and diets and things. And I've looked up some diets. William the Conqueror had a really bad one. Uh, he was getting really too fat um, and his horses were really struggling. He couldn't even balance uh, on his horse at times. So he went for a one-week-only alcohol diet. He locked himself in his room and he just drank wine constantly. John, John, just shut the door because it's going to get cold. He just drank wine for a week. Um, he actually died because he fell off his horse drunk. Um, so it didn't work. I don't um, endorse that one. There's the Atkins diet. Uh, there's the cabbage soup diet. Uh, there's the Scarsdale diet. There's the F plan, the 5-2 plan. Uh, hands up if you've done any of those. Yeah, everyone's done, tried something. Anyone try healthy eating? Yep. Keep trying it. Um, I know Sue cuts out nearly anything of excitement during Lent. Uh, crisps, chocolate, sweets. Um, she did sugar one year, which was quite interesting because she couldn't take it in her coffee. She got quite cranky. Um, but she coped. Oprah Winfrey did something called the OptiFast diet and she lost 67 pounds, but in the end actually just said, it's portion control and exercise. So there's, there's loads of diets out there. Elvis, this is quite an interesting one, he did the sedation diet. He um, actually overly subscribed himself to sedatives and sedated himself for three days, thinking he would wake up slim. Um, he didn't cut out the, I have to read this, deep fried peanut butter and banana sandwiches. He deep fried them in butter when he woke up. So I think that could have something to do with not losing weight. So at some point, losing weight, you have to understand, it's quite simple. Burn more than you put in. Quite simple, not so easy to actually apply it. Diet's one thing. I want us to think about our faith. And faith being of not just our physical lifestyle, that's really important, but heaven and the life that we're living now is more important. The adventures that God wants us to go on. Are we spiritually fit and healthy? We can't afford faith fads. We can't afford just to have a try, I'll try a bit of this. This Atkins one didn't work. I'll try a bit of the cabbage soup one. That didn't work. I'll have a go at this one. We can't afford faith diets. We need to get stuck in to one that works. And I'm excited because I found one that works. It's the Bible. And I want us to think, I had some questions when I was writing this down. What is the point of our faith? What is the point of us getting up early on a Sunday morning when lots of our friends are, are having family days or off to Merry Hill or off out? What, what is the point of us setting aside this morning? What is the point of the four songs we've just sung? What is the point of you sitting here, looking at my beautiful face as John so kindly prayed, and listening why do we love Jesus? Why are we coming to church? 
There's a word that is the buzzword in education at the moment is impact. You have to write impact statements. Everything you do has to have an impact, otherwise why bother? You know, at school, I'm driven at school because I love the children. And I don't want any lesson to have failed a child. I don't want a child to come to school one day and go home at the end of the day, except my son says, and go, I've learned nothing today. I know he has. He just doesn't actually realise what he's learning. But we have to have an impact. What is the impact of Jesus on your life? What is the impact of you attending church this morning? Are you going to be leaving this morning a different person? Are you going to be leaving here this morning with just another little bit of that faith journey um, concreted inside you? Is there going to be a different thought process when you leave this morning? Is there evidence that Jesus is your saviour? Is there evidence that your faith is being lived out day by day? And these are all challenges that I've been contemplating this week. We're going to read James 2. We're literally just going to go through section by section. But I want you to kind of hold three things in your mind as we go through. Number one, commitment is an essential part of your faith. You can't be a Christian just by holding up a Bible and going, yeah, I agree with this. We can't just be a Christian because we, we say that the Bible is truth or we say it's this. We need commitment in our heart and in our mind. So the first one is commitment is essential. Second one is right actions are the natural byproduct of your faith. A genuine Christian will have a changed life. So we've got commitment, we've got action, and then we've got faith without actions doesn't do anybody any good. So the result of faith is a changed life. Rich, can you put those Bible verses up for us? So we're just going to turn to James 2. So if you've got your Bible in whatever old-style format of pages or new-style format of slider screen, whatever you want, it's going up there as well. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I'm going to leave it there for a moment. You may or may not have seen there's been a a series going around on Facebook, on social media, of of a story of a a new pastor, 10,000 seat to church. A new pastor is going to get introduced to the church that day and actually dresses up as a homeless man and spends about half an hour before the service just wandering around um, aimlessly, asking people, do they have any money? Could they buy him some food? Do they have a a hot drink for him? Do they have anything for him? And he he gets shunned by most people. He he says about three people exchange glances with him, but nobody would speak to him. And he very proudly walked down to the front of the church. He tried to sit in the first couple of pews and actually got asked to move. Um, and the elders of the church at the time, they were in on it all, uh, and they stood at the front, they welcomed to the front the new pastor, and they said his name out, and everyone looked around, they were cheering and clapping, and then the homeless man walked to the front, and then he shared about, do this for the least of my people, and he closed the service, and everybody went home. Now, when I've looked into it and tried to find it, I can't actually find the church that has come from. So whether it happened or didn't happen, there's a real point to that. Do we judge people by their outward appearance? Do we want to welcome the well-dressed, the, the wealthy, 
because we think they must have blessing from God or, or because they must have it all together or, or maybe we just want them to be a really good tither and put money into the church. Do we give them a better seat? Or is there somebody that's come in that, that maybe hasn't showered in a while or, or isn't doing so well economically? Do we, do we put them somewhere to the back? I've never seen that here. But do we do it mentally? Do we make judgments about people? I'm not saying that, that that's something we all do, but just to pause for thought. Do we treat people better depending on their outward appearances? It says in the word that rich people can often struggle to get into the kingdom of heaven because of pride or because they've got it all and they don't know how to rely on Jesus. We can't judge them the other way and only put forward the poor because then we're judging them because of their wealth. God's love is for all, equal, and we need to do the same. We can't favour because of status or appearance or money. Sometimes we're uncomfortable with poverty because it means there's actually an expectation that we need to do something. Uh, I'm hoping, John, you'll share later about the food bank and the opportunity we've got with that. But when there is poverty, there's a response required. Sometimes we don't want to face that. But God has no favouritism. God is so good. He sustains us when we can't. I'm so amazed at this church. 160-something years, this building, or the second building has been standing. We're not in a really affluent area. If we look around church, we don't have multimillionaires sitting here that, that their tithe is, is not even noticeable. But God has sustained this church. God has sustained the work here through his amazing grace. And I love the fact that everybody is welcomed here. Sometimes we look at, at wealth and we go, oh, that's because God's really blessed them. They've got that because of God's blessing. God may well be blessing them, but wealth can't be seen as a, as a signature of God's blessing on them. God calls us ready to suffer. And we're going to look at a couple of verses from Matthew. <coughs> God calls us to be ready to suffer for him and give up everything. And why would God do that? If you think about what you do for somebody you love, whether it's moving location, whether it's um, giving up a job for your other half, whether it's, um, I don't know what all the different things you do as a sacrifice for somebody you love. And God just asks us, would, what will you sacrifice for me? What will you give up for me? Will you pick up my cross? So if we look at Matthew 6, 19 to 21, it says... Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. God wants us to live free of all those trappings. And whether we've got lots of wealth or we don't have enough, it's what our heart views it as. My dad is blessed and, and he does, has worked hard and, and he has got money. That doesn't mean I have to shun him because he has got wealth. And he's generous with that wealth and he uses it for God's kingdom. So it's what we do and how we view it and not judge people for it. Matthew 19, 28 to 30 says, Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Let's make sure we stay open to the kingdom. So moving back to James, James 2 verse 5, talks about the poor, but not necessarily poor monetarily. It could be poor in material possessions. It could be poor as the society sees them. Doesn't mean that poor automatically get heaven and the rich go to hell. Poor people are often more aware of their need for Jesus. They know they need help. They know they need support. They know they need something in their lives. It can be said that those that have it all and they can fix everything because they've got the money and the wealth don't see the need for Jesus, don't see the need for that love, for that salvation, for that hope, for the future. If we move on to James 2 verse 8, it says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. What is that law? What is that command? We need to love each other in the same way that he has loved us. If we look at John 15, verse 12. I'm making Rich jump all over the place today. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. It's so simple, but it's so huge. Because Jesus laid down his life. How much are you willing to show love to those that you love? And then there's how much are you willing to show love to those you don't even know? James doesn't pull any punches. He lays it all out there. That verse has come from Leviticus 19.18. And it's the basis for all the laws of how we should relate to one another. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Christ reinforced this truth through Matthew, and then Paul taught it again in Romans and in Galatians. Love one another, as I have loved you. If you're not sure how to love, we just have to look at Jesus. We need to hold on to what he's done. So if we go back to James 2.8. We need to keep the royal law found in scripture. Love your neighbour as yourself. You are doing right. If you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So we need to treat all people the same. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. That is not the excuse verse that basically says, well, if you can't keep all of it, you don't have to bother. We all know we're going to mess up. We all know we are not going to get through today without having at least made one step up, slip up. That's not the get out clause that if you can't keep them all, don't bother trying. We can't cherry pick which laws to keep. They're all designed to keep us safe and to live a life that's good and leads others to Christ. A life that's set apart from this amazing adventure that God has for each of us. If you sin, we need Jesus. We need to measure ourselves against Jesus' standards and not measure ourselves against each other. We can't get caught up in the one-upmanship, even if it's just in our minds and we don't even say it out loud. Don't judge one another. Don't measure yourself against somebody else. Just look at Jesus. He will put our faith where we need it to be. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We're saved by God's free gift, grace and by faith, not by keeping the rules. We're called to obey Jesus. 
Paul teaches us that we stand before Christ and will be judged. God's grace doesn't cancel that out. It doesn't cancel out our duty to obey him and keep his rules, loving others, etc. We have that relationship. We have faith and we've got deeds. And I said at the beginning, hold those three things in your mind. If we're loving Jesus with all our heart, if he's truly sitting inside each of us, then our deeds are going to happen. We're going to see somebody homeless and we're going to think, what can I do to make the situation better? If we see a friend crying, the first thing we're going to be thinking is, how can I support them? If we know somebody's having difficulty, make a meal, we make a phone call, we send a text. We can't help to do something when that love of Jesus is sitting inside us. So it's not a conflict of faith or deeds. It's about the two coming together. When we have a relationship with Jesus, it changes those rules from being something we, we stick to and we feel we have to follow to something we want to follow because we love him. The only way a relationship can grow is through time. So if your only time you spend with Jesus is a Sunday morning here, then our relationship with him is going to stay really shallow. We're in the most perfect time coming up to Lent to maybe drop something or start something. As a family, we've, we've often done the trying to stop sweets or stop, stop cakes, and we fail miserably because we don't have very many in the house. So then when we go out and buy ourselves a treat, we buy one, we're thinking, oh, we've messed up again. It hasn't cost us anything to give up sweets or cakes. But one thing we are trying to do is take up a daily Bible reading as a family. And I started doing some activities with Noah. We need time with Jesus. If we don't put our time in with Jesus, we haven't got a relationship that sets us free. We love God. We recognize the huge sacrifice that he made by sending his son to the cross. That has got to sit right in the bottom of our hearts. That is the fuel that is going to be setting us free. That is the fuel that's going to lead to those deeds and those actions because of his cross, because of his love. If we go on to James 2.13, we can see all those reasons why. Here it comes. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over, over judgment. We need to not judge others, but keep following with love. So faith and deeds. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Incomplete faith is just, yes, I believe in Jesus. Here's my Bible. I'm living by this. But if it's not sitting at that heart, if we're just saying it's true, but it's not transforming us, true faith transforms our conduct as well as our thoughts. If our life remains unchanged, what, what good is it saying that that is truth? What good is it is holding the Bible up and going, I'm living by this, if it's not changing how we behave and what we believe and what we speak? Verse 15, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith and deeds look like a contradiction. But John's a Wolves fan, and I'm a Wolves fan. But our, our, our fanship is very different. I'm a Wolves fan by association. I didn't really ever watch football before I got married. We were a rugby family. I'd watch all the rugby games. We were Bath supporters, which I know makes no sense when you grow up in Surrey. 
but um, my dad went to school in Bath and feels a part of that. So John, we can't afford a season ticket, but if he had one, would, would, would buy a season ticket. He has the kit. The first thing that Melody wore when she was born was a wolf's baby grow and had a wolf's teddy. Noah also had to have a wolf's baby grow and he had um, Andy Gray bear. Apparently Andy Gray was a wolf's player. So that was their first thing. So those, my kids are now grown up. They are now Wolves fans. They have no choice. They have to follow in their father's choices. But what John does with Wolves, he knows when the games are on. If they're not on a device that he can watch, he follows them on the live stuff. Me, I'll just find out whether Wolves win or not by his mood. That's how it, that's how it works in our house. And, yeah. And I am willing them to win, not because I'm that bothered if they win, but I'd like John in a good mood that night. That's how it works. John puts time and effort into knowing about wolves, into loving them and supporting them and wanting our kids to know about them and loving them. I just kind of follow it because it's what he does. So my relationship with wolves, isn't that great? It's a bit, it's a bit thin. But he loves wolves. And it's his childhood team and he's followed it through. And I know if we had the money, we'd be at every match home and away. If we are loving Jesus and he is the passion in our hearts, then all those deeds, all those actions won't be because we've been told we should love the poor and we wouldn't be loving one another because his word says and we wouldn't be doing all these things because we're told to. We will just be desperate to show somebody else his love. We will want somebody else to understand that peace that we have at the core of our hearts, that when we're having a really tough time, that we can just sit and have that joy in our heart. When we're in the middle of decision-making processes, we don't have to stress about them because we know we can trust God that if we've submitted our lives to him and we know our future is safe in his hands, he will guide our path even when it's really difficult. If that is sitting deep with inside us. So it's not faith and deeds are a contradiction. It's actually they go together. True faith is a changed lives. We're saved by faith because we trust Jesus. We take his truth. But we do the stuff because of that truth. We carry on through. Verse 18. It says, not a lot at the moment. There we go. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the sacrifice was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and he was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. For what he did because he believed. True faith always results in good deeds. But it's not the deeds that save us or justify us. That's our faith. Faith is our salvation. That future relationship, that hope, all of that is what we get by loving Jesus and accepting him into our hearts. If we just go to the last couple of verses. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? 
She hid the spies and she showed her faith in God's purpose because of what she did. So there's help. Our spiritual health plan, it's all in the word. It's all in the Bible. That is what is going to save us. That is what's going to keep us spiritually fit and healthy. And it just comes back to time. It comes back to time. In Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's done all the hard work. Jesus has already done that on the cross. It's us accepting that and letting it change us. If you notice a lot of miracles through the New Testament, Jesus asked key questions about faith before the miracle. And in the case of the woman um, that touched his, his cloak, his outer garments, there was an action step that came first. She had to physically choose to touch it. The people who were healed not only had faith, but they had faith that took them to where Jesus was and obeyed him. They had to go. The friends had to take the man and drop him through the roof. The woman had to step out and touch his garment. There's action that goes with faith every time. The world is watching us. If you publicly declare your faith, you can't then live in secret. Our faith cannot be visible on a Sunday morning in here. And then the moment we step outside, it gets hidden again. Because we'll just be called hypocrites. And everything that we say about God, they will not believe. So the world is watching What does your faith look like to people outside? James got really irritated by people who would talk the talk, but they wouldn't walk it. I'm just going to finish with something. Having a faith that works will see you through the worst times of your life. And it will give greater depth and satisfaction to the best times. The Greek word for maturity, which means perfect, complete, not lacking in anything, and I'm going to say this wrong, I'm sure, is teleos. James uses the word five times in his chapter, indicating the instructions here are something of a manual on how to grow as a mature Christian. It's going to tell you a story about some ducks. Seeing as the ducks are back, I'm hoping, Lizzie, you've seen them. Ducks are back. The ducks are back. I got very excited when I saw the post. I thought, I know somebody who'll smile. There's a story told in a town where all the residents are ducks. Every Sunday, the ducks waddle out of their houses and waddle down Main Street to their church. They waddle into the sanctuary and squat in their proper pews. The duck choir waddles in and takes its place, and then the duck minister comes forward and opens the duck Bible. He reads them, Ducks, God has given you wings. With wings you can fly. With wings you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls will confine you. No fences can hold you. You have wings. God has given you wings. Go fly like birds. And all the ducks quack our men. Then they all waddle home. There's no more time for waddling. Put your faith to work and you'll find a faith that works. Amen. Amen.